Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. Today's message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other sources like this, visit gycweb.org. Today's topic, Beyond Good Intentions, by John Bradshaw. Heavenly Father, as we talk about three simple steps for finishing the work, we've talked about yielding, we've talked about receiving the Holy Spirit, a gift that you are willing to give. And now, Lord, I pray that as we talk about moving beyond talking about it, as we start to transition into the action phase, that you'd help us to be people of action. I thank you that here in this room there are plenty of people. Their life is characterized by soul winning. I'm thankful. But if any one of us here uh, are not living a life characterized by soul winning, Lord, would you please press us into service. Use us as we are. Or if you need to change us, change us and use us then. But Father, if all of us could do something for you, I believe something great's going to happen. Bless us, Lord, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you have heard me say this in another forum, so I apologize for the repeat, but I think the illustration is fitting. There are some people who look at their children as tax deductions. As a pastor, I would do no such thing. Instead, I look at my children as sermon illustrations. <laughs> and I always clear it with my kids if I'm going to talk about them, so normally it's okay that I do. I've learned that children are great followers. Followers. Earlier this year, I had the very good fortune of being able to visit my home country of New Zealand. It was my mother's birthday. She turned 85. It's wonderful to have your mum when she's 85. Or still have your mum. And uh, one of the neat things about going home with your kids is you get to do all the things you used to do when you were a kid, but now it's because you want your children to experience it. Truth is, you just want to do it again and... Not far from my hometown, there's a, a, a swimming pools. It's a, a hot pools, thermal pools. There's a lot of thermal activity in New Zealand, and so thermally, thermal swimming pools are, are everywhere. I grew up going out to the swimming pool. Uh, long story short, I noticed my daughter was doing some little thing where she was laying on the edge of the pool and falling into the water, just a kid thing. And that was all fine. There was, a, there was a steel bar that ran along the edge of the pool from one end to the other, and she was holding onto that and tipping in and just being a kid. Well, just a moment later, my son pops up out of the water, boop, right next to my wife and I, I guess, and, and, and Shannon, and I notice he's got a gash in his chin. Gash is hanging down like this. I said, what did you do? He said, 
I did what Shannon did. Now, she was holding onto this bar and falling into the water, but she had the presence of mind to actually let go of the bar when she fell into the water. And Jacob, not knowing quite what she was doing, went into the water but held onto the bar and so flipped him right around and bam! His chin went into the concrete wall of the swimming pool. I'm just thanking God it wasn't his teeth or, or something else. And he ended up with a gash on his chin, and his mother said, that'll need to be stitched. And I said, oh, that'll be fine. You just need these butterfly strips. that's all. It's funny how husbands and wives are different. I don't know if it's the same in every household or not, but son about kills himself. And I say, he'll be fine. His mother says, oh, he's got to go to the hospital. And so we uh, took him to the emergency clinic. It was after hours. And, uh, and I was confident that he would just need little steri strips, you know. And my wife is confident that he'll need stitches. And we walked in, and the receptionist lady was very nice, and she said, oh, looks like someone needs stitches. You don't think my wife would look at me as if to say, I told you so, do you? <laughs> How long will the wait be? Oh, two or three hours? Awesome. Nothing like a two or three hour wait in an emergency room. So we went to visit some friends and we came back right on time. And you know, by then my son's chin had swollen up a little bit and the doctor came in and she was a very nice lady. And, and uh, we explained what happened and suggested he might need stitches. And she took one look at his chin and said, oh no, steri strips will be just fine. Now, if you see my son's chin, he's got, well, you, you know, up under there, he's got a little cut on his chin because he copied his sister. Now, here's what I think interesting. Some years ago, we were staying in a uh, little motel uh, out. Uh, we were in, investigating a call to a church, and they had us staying in this place. And my, my daughter, my daughter, is, she calls out to me. She says, Dad, look at me. And so she's on the, she's on the edge of the swimming pool. And uh, that's the pool right back there behind her. And she goes, Dad, watch this. And she jumps backwards into the pool, except she didn't jump back far enough. Boom. Hits her chin. I watch it happen. Oh, no. Rush right over there. She'll need stitches. It's my daughter. My daughter will need stitches. My son, he'll be okay. <laughs> worry about my son. Put a Band-Aid on. He'll be fine. My daughter, oh, she needs stitches. And she did. And Dr. Underhill at the ER at Walla Walla General stitched her up. I didn't find out until this year. This was a few years ago. I didn't find out until this year that the reason she was doing what she was doing is because she saw her brother doing it. <laughs> she copies him, and she ends up with, a, with stitches in her chin. He copies her, and he ends up with stitches in his chin. These kids are great followers. Which teaches me a little lesson. God has called us to be followers of him.
we are to be imitators of Jesus Christ. Faith in God isn't a static thing. It is a dynamic thing. Faith in God is to consume your life. I remember when my brother became a Christian. He became a Seventh-day Adventist. I was raised in a Roman Catholic family, seven kids. And my brother was the first one to leave our church, and he became a Seventh-day Adventist. We couldn't believe it. He started to eat differently. He might have started to dress differently. I, I don't remember. He, uh, he would go to church, but church was like all day. Who would do that? I went to church. Church started at 8 o'clock in the morning on Sundays. And, and if you understand much about uh, the Roman Catholic tradition, at, at, right at about 8.50, I would leave after communion. No point staying for whatever was next. And I'd go home, and my mother would have breakfast ready, bacon and eggs or something like that. And then I would take off to my job pumping gas at the gas station just down the road. I'd be there at about 9.15, 9.30. I went to church. Furthermore, I would, with some frequency, at least up until a given point in my life, go to confession. I would pray. How much more serious than that do you need to be? Well, faith in God is something that ought to consume your life. You shouldn't be defined simply by the fact that you go to church or you go to church on Saturday or, or whatever. But everything about our lives need to, needs to pass through the filter of the Holy Spirit. Everything, every detail. A Christian isn't a Christian because she or he calls himself a Christian. A Christian is a Christian when that person is a follower of Jesus Christ. There's a word used in the Bible to describe a follower of Jesus, and that word is the word disciple. Disciple. And if you look it up in the Greek language, you'll discover that in addition to, to meaning disciple, the word means a learner or a pupil or an apprentice. That's interesting, isn't it? So when you become a disciple of Jesus... In a certain sense, you become apprenticed to Jesus. I had many friends who got a, a, apprenticeships. I have a nephew. No, it's my, my sister's grandson. He just got himself an apprenticeship working with a plumber. And that's good. He'll be a tradesman. It's, a, it's good to have a trade. Jesus was a tradesman. It's honorable work. It's hard work. He'll always have plenty of work. It's a very good thing. He'll be able to provide for himself and for his family one day. What he's going to do is track the master tradesman or the master plumber and follow him and, and, and inspect what he does and imitate him and learn from him so that, I mean, right now, if the plumber does a job and my nephew Ryan does the same job, you'll be able to tell the difference because this boy doesn't have a clue yet. But after four years of being an apprentice, the job will be done uh, by, by, by my nephew or by the master plumber, and you've got no way of telling the difference. I had a scary experience 
that demonstrated this to me. I was in Missouri, <clears throat> and I talked to a friend there. We were holding an evangelistic series, and I told him, yeah, I've got this lump on my forehead that's very annoying. And it's, it, it, some days I think it's getting bigger, and some days I don't. I'd like to get rid of it. But, you know, I'm going to need some kind of plastic surgery. And he said, I have a friend right here in town who was, I think he said he was the, um, <clears throat> the chairman or the president of the American Plastic Surgeons Association at, at one time, something like that. He's good. I can call him and get, him in to see, get you in to see him. He said, magnificent, let's do that. I need to tell you that the, the bump or the lump on my head was caused by my wife. <laughs> oh, it was. That's not a joke. She headbutted me. <clears throat> We have a fun marriage, let me tell you. <laughs> Her head crashed against my head, and a lump formed on my head automatically. Automatically. So she's clearly, she's, I have a hard-headed wife. That's really what I have. <clears throat> it was an accident. I was moving one way, she moved the other. Boom! And this lump appeared, and it'll go down, and it never went down. So I got in to see the doctor. I forget his name, but he was an eminent plastic surgeon. They wheeled me in, or they, they took me into surgery, and I laid down, and then they covered up much of my face with, uh, I don't know, cloth, drapes. They draped my face. And I realized there was a couple of reasons why. Maybe there was going to be issues with blood. I don't know. But he, the, the, the surgeon did not want me to see what was actually going on. Because he spoke to me. He said, all right, this is looking good here. All right. And then it got strangely silent. And I heard another voice say, now, should I cut here? <laughs> Wait a minute. <clears throat> I didn't realize that that was national bring your kid to work day. Well, it wasn't that, but what I didn't realize is this was a teaching hospital, you know? It's attached to the University of Missouri. And whereas I thought I was going to get Ben Carson <laughs> cut my head open, I'm getting some guy who doesn't even know quite where to hold the scalpel, whether to hold this end or that end. <clears throat> Here's what happened, actually. Uh, the physician told me that even though there would be a line here on my head, you didn't have to worry because when the scar is formed, you never even know. It'll just disappear, and you won't even know that the surgery had taken place. But I was panicking now because a novice was cutting on my head. And when I got out of there, and when the bandages or whatever came off, the Band-Aid or some such thing, the, the, he said it would just disappear into the lines in my forehead. And uh, the, the, the scar was half an inch above I was devastated. This guy told me that all you'd be able to see is just a regular old line that some of us are blessed with and nothing else. And I looked in the mirror and I said, oh, man, I want my money back. I want, I want to make good. I mean, what do you do? You, I mean, you can't, you can't uncut a head, you know? But a marvelous thing happened. Over time, as I would look in the mirror... I would notice that the, the, the surgical line and the line on my, the, the natural line on my head would get closer together and closer together. I don't quite know how this is, whether it was just a matter of swelling going down or what it was, until the one line just disappeared and folded into the other, and that was it. 
And now you would never even know that I had had plastic surgery. <laughs> and now that I host a television program, don't think I haven't thought about it again. <laughs> the apprentice surgeon, I know we don't call them apprentices, but for the purpose of the illustration I will, had so closely watched the master surgeon do his job that when he, or she, it was a he, I believe, when he followed instructions from the physician, his work and the master plastic surgeon's work were indistinguishable. So that now I expect you can go and see that person who's not now being told where to cut and how to cut and how deep to cut and where, and now the job is going to be just as though it was the best guy in town done, had done the job. So the apprentice follows the master and becomes like the master. But as you look at disciples in the Bible, you discover that disciples, the disciples, were remarkably incomplete people. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 36, I'll just bounce through these verses. Jesus had, had shared the parable of the wheat and the tares, and they came to him and they said, declare unto us this parable. We don't know what the parable means. Can you explain the parable to us? Would you do that, please? Now, these were disciples. On their shoulders would rest the future and now the history of the Christian church, and they didn't understand a parable after being with Jesus all that time. It's evident that you can be a disciple of Jesus and not know everything. But notice these disciples, when Jesus was speaking, was, was on the Mount of Olives, they came to him and they said, tell us what shall be the sign of thy coming out of the end of the world? Matthew 24, verse 3. So the disciples wanted to learn more. They might not have known it all, but they had a willingness to learn more. The disciples were sometimes fearful. When they saw Jesus walking on the water, they thought it was a spirit. They were troubled and they cried out, fearful people. Sometimes the disciples blew it completely. There's a phenomenal phrase in the gospel of Matthew that says, they all forsook him and fled. Phenomenal. They forsook him and fled. And look at what Jesus had to work with. Philip. When Philip described Jesus, he described him as Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. There's skepticism in that phrase. When there were 5,000 men and women and children besides waiting to be fed, Philip's the one who said, where are we going to get enough bread for this people? Even 200 days wages won't feed these people. Jesus said in John 14, have I been so long with you, Philip, and yet you have not known me? Philip, three years, and Philip, you still haven't figured it out. And then there were James and John. James and John. You think of James and John, you think, well, John's all right. He wrote the gospel. He wrote the book of Revelation. It was James and John who said, now, Jesus, there's some people over there who aren't seeing things the way we do. We're not sure what to do, but we're thinking that we might have them incinerated. What do you think? Remember that? 
Shall we call fire down from heaven and burn them up? What kind of meatheads were they? Shall we have them burned up? Elijah did it. You want us to do that too? We'll just, get, we'll just fry them. How would that work? Unbelievable. Can you imagine having a dispute? If, if we, had a, we had an issue when I pastored in Lexington, Kentucky. Not a bad issue, but the people over at the back fence, one lady wanted a new fence put up and some neighbors didn't like people backing in because as they backed in, there'd be exhaust fumes going in their backyard. It seemed a little trivial, but... So, you know, we had a church board meeting and we decided that we would pray that God would send fire down from heaven and just burn those people up. (laughs) Well, no, we didn't, of course, but think of what Jesus had to work with. And then Judas, you know, we know how that worked out. But Jesus took these faulty people they were disciples. There was, there was just one thing that was really needed from them, and this is what Jesus explained in Matthew 16 and verse 24. He said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So if someone is just willing to yield, it doesn't matter what their temper was, is, was like. It doesn't matter what their disposition is or was like. None of that really is consequential. If they're willing to come to Jesus and die and be remade in Jesus, to put everything on the altar, Lord, it's all yours. My life is yours to do with what you will. Then that person can genuinely be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, friend, I I want you to know that God can use you in powerful ways. Powerful ways. Nothing else matters than your willingness to be used by God. Obviously, you need to have a realistic relationship with God and stay in close touch with God, but it's really part and parcel of the same thing. Because Jesus took faulty, fearful, ignorant people who would often blow it And what did he say to them? He said this in Matthew 10 and verse 1. When he had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them, he didn't say this, this is written here, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I would encourage you today to set your sights high. You know, you want to get a Bible study with somebody. That's good. That's really good as a matter of fact. But you don't want to just get a Bible study. You want to see that person baptized and their whole family and their circle of friends, and you want, and you want them to become soul winners themselves. You want to aim real high. When Jesus sent out the disciples, he said, go cast out some demons. Have you cast out many demons lately? But these are the other, other, other tasks that Jesus gave to simple, everyday, faulty, frail people. Go out and heal some diseases. God still does that. He still does that in miraculous ways. I mean, uh, to me, I think medicine is miraculous, and God works through physicians and so forth, and that's miraculous. And God still works the supernatural miracles 
that transcend human training. He's not asking us just to do some little thing. He's asking us to do massive things. We, I think it's important for us to get it into our heads that God is going is to work through the Holy Spirit like he has not done since Pentecost. And he is looking to you, whether you are a teacher or a lawyer or a homemaker or a community volunteer, whatever your position, God is looking to you to do some great thing through. Jesus called the disciples and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Fishers of men. This is why it's so important you attend the last three sessions of this six-part session because this is when we're getting into how you can go back to your church and cause a revolution to take place and transform your church into a soul-winning center. Not just do, but teach others to do. A disciple, and that's us. That's all of us. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We have been called to be, all of us, disciple makers. So my question is, what are you waiting for? Enough talking about it. Time to go and do it. Now, where are you going to find opportunities? We'll talk about it. There's a zillion opportunities. But I'm, I, I'm encouraging you not to wait for an opportunity. Go make an opportunity. You don't need to go back from GYC and ask for your church if they will give you permission to get involved in doing soul winning. You've been given permission by God. You don't need permission from a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a conference president or anything else. Now, obviously, you need to work in harmony with your church. And maybe I'll cover that in just a couple of minutes. But remember, the leaders of the established church back in the days of the early church forbade the disciples to preach, imprisoned them, but the prisons couldn't even hold them. And it was Peter, I believe, who said, whether it be right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to listen to God, you judge. They took their marching orders from God. So if you are listening to God and you say, God, here I am, send me, God will send you. Now, part of the problem is we sometimes think that being sent by God means preaching to a stadium full of people. And while that may mean sent by God, God doesn't need too many people to preach to stadiums full of people, but he does need people to witness while they're sitting on a bus. He does need people to talk to people while they're standing in line in a department store. You understand what I'm saying? I have a brother who's been involved in raising up several churches, and he was, uh, he was taking the bus to work. And he said, Lord, if I'm going to take the bus, I want you to put me next to somebody that I can witness to. And he would sit down on the bus, and whoever he was sitting next to, he would begin a conversation, just a conversation. And then he'd pray, Lord, let's see if we can lead this somewhere. He was striking out left and right, people who wanted to be left alone, until one day he gets on the bus and talks to the guy next to him, and they just get on like a house on fire. And he's praying, Lord, open some doors here, open some doors here. And so the next day he looks for the guy, and it became the ritual. They would sit together on the bus. And he's praying. You know, he didn't just sit down next to him and say, hey, here's a copy of the great controversy. He didn't do it that way. 
which wouldn't be all bad. That's the book that brought me to Jesus. But, you know, there's a time and there's a place. Lord, show me the time. Help me to understand the place. He is praying. One day, this guy says to my brother, I watched something on television last night. It was about the universe and the stars and the galaxies. It was phenomenal. And my brother turned to him, and in his gentle voice, he said, Have you ever wondered who made all that? Simple question. The guy put his hands in the air like they're sitting on a bus. Yes, I've often wondered about that. The door was wide open. And before long, they were engaged in regular weekly Bible studies. Isn't that something? You don't need to sweat, how am I going to find an opportunity? You go to God and say, I'm looking for them, and I'm looking for them where I am, where I go to school. We had a young lady who, was, uh, who, was, who made a decision for baptism at our meeting in Dayton, Ohio. And I said, this, this young lady, I mean 17, 18 years of age, she was the only Christian in her family, only one. And I asked at the church or at the series, how did this girl come to the place where she's even attending church and coming to this evangelistic series? Well, it happened that she plays in a citywide orchestra, a youth orchestra, plays a violin or something. And one of the other musicians in that group was a Seventh-day Adventist. And he simply issued an invitation. That's all. Not knowing whether she'd accept it or reject it, issued an invitation. I believe you find this in Acts of the Apostles. Ellen White said that after Pentecost, the ambition of the believers, listen, was to A, reveal the likeness of Christ's character, and B, to labor for the enlargement of his kingdom. So if you're going off to community college when when you get back home after this, you are in the mission field there. If you go into one of our 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 denominational schools, that's a mission field too. You understand? Wherever you are, now, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you say, well, look, God has called me to be a fisher of men, of men and women for that matter. God has called me as a disciple to be a disciple maker. One thing that irks me just a little bit is when I hear, and man, I read this, I read church leaders writing this drivel. And that is that, uh, where did it go? I don't know what I think. I have to read what I think. I hear, and I still hear, that our churches don't allow young people to get involved. You are living in fantasy land if you think that our churches don't let young people get involved. How many pastors do we have in the room here? How many pastors? Is it just one? One, two, one, two, one, two, three. There's more than one. Just three, is that all? Someone's scratching the head. You become a pastor right now. (laughs) Ask any of them, will you allow young people to get involved and get active in your church? The answer will be yes. I have worked with lots and lots of pastors. Never have I had one say to me, I'm sick of all these young people who want to get involved in ministry. (laughs) Why don't they just leave me alone? It's a myth. Now... It might be that there are some kids who want to turn their, in, turn their Sabbath school class into a rock concert or to a freestyle rap competition. Then the church board said, oh, you know, we'd rather you didn't. That's different. 
That's when you respect the church and you try to work within the confines of the church. And it's true there may be a few cranky churches dotting the fruited plain. But my experience has taught me that young people of all ages are welcome to get involved in ministry. Now, it might be, oh, no, we don't believe in evangelistic series here, so we don't want you holding a series of meetings. All right, that's not the only thing you can do. Oh, we want to do an outreach here, that, but, the, but the board won't provide any money for it. Man, nobody can stop you from sharing Jesus with somebody. No church can say, don't give out those, uh, those tracts or those books. No church can say, you must not distribute Bible study enrollment cards. No church can stop you from putting a tag at the bottom of your email saying, if you're interested in studying the Bible, click here. No one can do that. It is easier now to share Jesus than it has ever, ever, ever been. No church can stop you from creating a website. Studyjesuswithme.com Let's study the Bible and know Christ.org No one can stop you from doing that. It is easier now than it has ever been. And you don't need permission from anybody but God. And God has already given you permission. And if you do get resistance doing a soul-winning project, maybe you're aiming in the wrong direction. That's just a possibility. Counsel isn't bad. You get an idea that you're going to go home and you're going to put out handbills advertising your seminar on the evils of Freemasonry and the Illuminati. And the pastor gets a little nervous about that. Well, that's time to say maybe the pastor knows a little something. Rightly so. You want to do something sensible. You want to do something Christ-focused. You want to do something outreach-oriented. And you need to go after it and share your faith. And when you do, your church will rise up and call you blessed. And if they don't, do it anyway. Do it anyway. You don't get involved in Christian service because you hope to get recognition. You just do it because you want to serve Jesus and shine a little light in someone's heart. There's an old book, an old hardback book. I bet they don't reprint it anymore. And, And the book, I believe, is simply called Luther Warren. Has anybody read that book about Luther Warren? Oh, you haven't? It's a magnificent book. Luther Warren was a kid. And he was walking down the road one day with one of his buddies, and I don't know where they were, 10, 12, 14, or 15 years old, but they were walking down the, down the road together, and they said, we would like in our church, and this is 50 or more years ago, maybe more, probably more, yes, more, years ago, we would like to have a youth organization in our church. We just don't seem to have one. And you know what they did? They said, let's pray about that. They got off the road, they, climbed, they got over into a field, and they knelt down in the grass, and they prayed, a couple of kids. Lord, what can you do? And out of that, they went to their local church, and the local church said, oh, no, we don't like the sound of that. That doesn't have our... our we, didn't, we didn't come up with the idea, so we don't want you doing it. They wouldn't be deterred. And as a result, what was the organization that Luther Warren ended up starting? Was it the AY movement in our church? I think it was AYs. The youth work in our church grew because somebody had a desire put in their heart by God, nurtured and watered by the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't take no for an answer because God was calling them and they wouldn't be held back. Luther Warren, fascinating individual. He uh, traveled to Jamaica to hold an evangelistic series. When he got to Jamaica, they said to him, well, we'd like to take you to your hotel or what? He said, no, no, I just need to pray. He was preaching that night. 
I need to pray. Forget about getting rest. Let me pray. And, and, I'll and it was a big deal meeting, and they had all their ministerial students. Luther Warren, the great preacher, is coming from the United States. Do what he does. Learn from him. So he starts off preaching, and I'm probably mangling the story a little bit, but it goes something like this. He starts off preaching about the signs of the times. And then he transitions into Daniel chapter 2. So that's unusual. Normally those are two different sermons. And then after five or six minutes on Daniel 2, he's into Daniel chapter 7. And then he's talking about salvation. And then he's talking about end time deceptions. And then he's talking about the Sabbath on opening night. These poor guys, they're pacing nervous. Oh, man, has he screwed this up? And our students will be forever ruined. And then he makes an appeal, an altar call, pleads with people to come to Jesus before it's too late. And people start streaming down front, and they pray with people, and they counsel with people, and they meet with people. And then the meeting is over, and that night, an earthquake struck Kingston, Jamaica. The next morning, he went down there and was picking through the ruins or wandering through the ruins. He even saw young people in, that, in the ruins dead who had come forward on his appeal the night before. Isn't that something? That's keeping close to the Holy Spirit. You don't need anybody's permission to give Bible studies. Just go and do it. You don't need permission to have spiritual conversation with somebody, to tell somebody about a website, did you ever do that? Man, there's a, you, you're on the internet. There's a great website you ought to check out with Bible studies on it. Have a look. Maybe they'll say no. Maybe they'll say yes. We have television programs. Not only it is written, but all kinds of Seventh-day Adventist television programs. Tell someone about it. Man, I, I watched a program on Discovery Channel, 7 o'clock on Sunday morning. It is written. I think you might like that. If they don't, they don't. If they do, you've just, you may have won us all. What God is calling us to do is to stop talking about it and start doing it and enter into the fray. And when we... I just want to share with you some interesting stories. I think these are interesting stories. I was in church in Southern California recently, a little church. And uh, the, 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 the leader of the church... Church doesn't have a pastor as such, but the leader of the church asked that a certain young man stand up. He was 18 years old. Not long ago, this 18-year-old kid was baptized. And when he was baptized, he got all kinds of static from his family. And then the person up front said, now, those of you who are planning to be baptized because of this young man's witness, stand up. Eight people stood up. Because an 18-year-old stood for Jesus, wouldn't be deterred, and now his father and his sister and his brother and his sister-in-law, eight people are going to be baptized because of this young man's witness. Who do you think he asked for permission? <clears throat> How much training do you think he got in how to share Jesus with his family. Again, you don't, don't get me wrong. Training is vital. We ought to get as much training as we can. But he just went and did something for Jesus. And eight people have been baptized as a result of this young man's witness. Isn't that something? There's an elderly man where I used to pastor a church. He emailed me. He said, oh, pastor, I wonder if you can help me with this thing. And so I thought, oh, I'll get back to him. Here's what happened. I didn't need to get back to him. He figured it out in the end. Uh, and, and so on. But he is, uh, I think, 88 years old. And he has macular degeneration, so all he has is peripheral vision. That's right, right? That's macular degeneration. Got to check here. All he's got is he, he doesn't have any vision here. He's just got this. When he walks, and he still walks around town, he walks very carefully, doesn't see real good. 
He's 88 years old and nearly blind. He might live another 10 years, but maybe not. So, so don't tell him I said this, but you, know, you could say he's nearly dead and nearly blind. He'd been a great man of God through the years, taught in our institutions, great man. <clears throat> but he wasn't actively involved in sharing his faith. And you might cut him some slack because he's 88 and blindish. But he wasn't cutting himself any slack. And he heard a presentation or he heard a sermon or something where the, where the facilitator said, if you will pray that God will give you a divine appointment, God will give you a divine appointment. Whoever you are, God will bring someone to you that you can share Jesus with. And he said, I'm 88 and I don't see, I don't know how God's going to do this, <clears throat> but let's give it a shot. And he prayed, Lord, I'm willing. And I want to be involved. I want to do something. Help me. The next day, he got an email from his sister. There's a lady here that I'm friends with who wants to study Daniel and Revelation. But she has macular degeneration. She doesn't see very well, and she needs some large print studies in order that she might study Daniel and Revelation. I don't quite know what to tell her, but you've walked down this road. Would you call her, please? Here's her phone number. He about fell over. He calls her up. They get connected. He starts studying the Bible. She's into Daniel and Revelation and studying like she's never studied before. 88 years old and almost blind. And God used this man, in a, is using this man in a great way. A great way. There's a fellow I used to work with at a hospital. He was the gardener. The gardener. He had led 50 people to baptism simply because he looked for opportunities to share Jesus. There was a church a lady told me about. I had to double check to see if this was true. She said, we had four members in our church and we wanted to grow. Four. What could we do? We didn't have a lot of money. We, we, were, we were virtually extinct. So we got on our knees and we prayed that God would help us. And we made it our business to pray every day and to pray together frequently that God would grow our church. Suddenly, people would, 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 would approach them in the supermarket. Are you a Seventh-day Adventist? I've often wondered what Seventh-day Adventists believe. Would you help me understand what Seventh-day Adventists believe? Her husband was a physician. He'd have patients saying, Doc, you're a Christian, aren't you? I've always wanted to study the Bible. Would you study the Bible with me? They realized they're going to have to baptize some people, but they didn't have a baptistry. So they called Portland, Oregon. They asked uh, uh, baptistries.com to deliver them a baptistry. And some guy in his little truck drove a, th a long way and delivered a baptistry. And when he was unloading it, he said, what is this thing anyway? And they said, well, it's a baptistry. He said, what's that? And they said, well, it's for ba and, and they explained it to him. And they said, you, you'd like to know more about this, wouldn't you? Yes. Well, let's keep in touch. Let's do Bible studies long distance. You know what happened, don't you? Six months later, that man drove all the way back to that church and was baptized in the baptistry he delivered. Because somebody prayed, Lord, help us to share Jesus in some way. I had a, I, did I mention, I mentioned earlier that I was back in, back in New Zealand. Uh, as a, uh, I'll tell a story very briefly. As a young man, there was a certain, uh, <clears throat> certain uh, nightclub that I would go to. And, uh, and years later, I, I met the man who used to own the nightclub. Uh, 
in interesting set of circumstances. When he, when he owned the nightclub, he was like the big man in town, I mean, among a certain section of the community. He was a nightclub owner, very big deal. Got around in a fancy car, and he hung around with fancy people, and, oh, it was just such a big deal. Well, all these years later, I'm in church, and my friend says to me, I'd like to meet, I'd like to introduce you to a guy. I'll just call him Ron. Ron Smith. I said, Ron Smith, man, that sounds familiar. And I shook his hand, and I said, Ron Smith, you owe me money. He said, oh, that's too bad, because I don't have any money. I explained to him how I used to attend his nightclub and that I wanted my money back. But... And my friend explained that through gently witnessing to this fellow, he was now attending the Seventh-day Adventist church. We had an evangelistic series coming up, and, and my buddy wanted me to invite Ron to attend, which I did, and Ron pledged that he would be there on the first night. The, 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 the short of that is that he was baptized. I baptized him about a mile from where he and I used to go, not together, but at the same, a mile away from his nightclub. It's, it's phenomenal, really. This year I was back there, and uh, when I met him, he looked at me actually like he was frightened, and uh, I didn't know why. I asked him how he was doing, and he spoke, and the words that came out of his mouth made no sense at all. No sense at all. And uh, I spoke some more, and he, he spoke. There were real words. It wasn't gibberish. Now, I'd had a church member once who'd had a stroke, and... Uh, he would try to speak, but he would speak words that were unrelated to what you were saying, even though he, the connection was busted up. Well, I knew Ron hadn't had a stroke. He had some type of dementia. I'm sure an intelligent person would know just what it was, but some type of dementia, not a regular, it wasn't Alzheimer's, it was some type of dementia. And it had affected his mind. He'd lost his mind. He had lost his mind. Now, on the one hand, I wanted to weep because my friend was, was now living in an institution, a group home behind locked doors. They, 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 you, they couldn't let him out on his own. He wouldn't hurt anyone, but he was likely to hurt himself. He didn't even recognize people anymore. The only person he recognized was our friend who would pick him up every Sabbath morning and take him to church. That I find interesting. But after I met this guy, and part of me wanted to weep, and part of me wanted to say hallelujah, because I consider that he is sealed now. His decision is locked in. But my friend said, hey, I want you to meet some people. And we walked out to the foyer of the church, and he said, now this is Carl. I don't know if you remember him, but Carl used to be the bouncer at the nightclub. And this guy here, Jeff, Jeff used to be the barman at the nightclub. And they're coming to church now. And there are others from the nightclub who are coming to church as well. Even when Ron's grip on reality was slipping away, he was able to share Jesus with these people with whom he had used to work, with whom he used to work. And they are saying, if Jesus can do that in his life, then maybe Jesus can do that in mine. He just stepped forward and shared the Jesus he knew in the way he knew how. He will never consciously share Jesus again as long as he lives. 
His mind is gone. But when you put yourself out there and say, I'm willing to do something to share Christ, God will bless your efforts. Have you not read where the Bible says God's word will not return to him void? I'm going to finish by telling you this story. I've told it a thousand times already. If you've heard it, just nod politely and say amen at the appropriate times. I made an altar call once against my better judgment. The Lord prompted me to make an altar call, and I said no. The, the, The danger was even getting into the discussion. I should have just ignored him. But God kept at me, make an altar call, make an altar call. And so I made the altar call. I didn't want, I'll tell you why I didn't want to make the altar call is because I was in a place where, long story, but it, it, long story. It just seemed like it would be better to make some other kind of appeal. A young lady stood up and came forward on this altar call. I recognized her. I wondered why she would be responding to an appeal. Years before, I had known her as being a Seventh-day Adventist and from a Seventh-day Adventist family. She told me when we went out the back, she said, my parents have stopped coming to church. In fact, they're separated and dad has gone back to drinking. Uh, My brothers are all out of the church. I come once in a great while. I married a Catholic. He wants nothing to do with it. She said, but this morning I woke up and something told me, go to church. And when I saw you were here, I knew that God had led me back to the church, and that was very nice. And so uh, I was was heartbroken. This family, they'd been friends of mine, and now, after 28 years of marriage or something, they'd split, and people don't get back together after splitting after 28 years of marriage. It doesn't happen. And the guy had been an alcoholic, and he dried out, but now he's gone back to the booze. I mean, what are the chances of them drying out again? No chance. And her teenage brothers were smoking dope, and it was just a mess. I said, well, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going to go and get them all and bring them all back to church. I'm going to pray that God will save my family. I mean, think about this. They, they, They were grown adults, and they'd split. They're not getting back together. And the alcoholic, the alcoholic, I said, I'll pray for you. My prayer was the hollowest prayer I'd ever prayed because I knew there wasn't a hope that this 20-year-old girl was going to bring her whole family back to Jesus. It wasn't going to happen. When I went back to hold that evangelistic series I told you about a moment ago, one of the first people I saw was this young lady. She said, have you heard? I said, no, I haven't. Heard what? She said, my parents are back in the church. Dad quit drinking. They got back together. They've been rebaptized. Not only are they back, but they're active in the church. Wow. I was scared to ask any more questions. Tell me more. She said, my husband is attending the archaeology seminar. What about your brothers? Well, one of them has started coming back to church. All right. The evangelistic series began. The husband made a decision to give his life to Jesus. In fact, during the archaeology seminar, 
we start handing out decision cards. Do you want to give your life to Jesus? They're all saying yes, except for one brother who's not attending. Would you like to be baptized? They all choose they'd like to be baptized, except for the one brother who's not attending. Late in the evangelistic series, the one brother who's not attending is sitting at home on the back steps smoking a cigarette. His father is watching 3ABN. And there's a program on about praying for your kids. He kneels down in his living room and at that moment prays for the son. Lord, you have worked miracles. Because of my daughter, my wife and I are back. Her husband is going to be baptized. We have two sons who are attending the series and making decisions for baptism. But there's this one boy. And he prayed for that one boy. As the father was praying, and the father should have been at the evangelistic series, but he was at home playing hooky. As the father was praying, that boy is sitting on the back step of his home smoking a cigarette. And the boy is thinking to himself, what am I doing sitting here? I should be at John's evangelistic meeting. He stubs out his cigarette on the step. He says, where's my Bible? He goes to get the Bible, finds a Bible, gets in the car, drives 20 minutes. And, and I, to this day, I can remember seeing that boy walk into the back late, about 30 minutes late. One year later, I was holding a, a, a speaking at a youth convention thing. The daughter was one of the organizers of the youth conference. The husband is sitting on the front row. All three brothers are there, all baptized. One of them became a student missionary, and one of them became an it is written Bible worker. And what are you waiting for? Not every family is the same. Not everybody gets the same opportunity. God doesn't use everybody in the same way. But if you have yielded yourself to God and made yourself available and begged God to fill you with His Holy Spirit, don't stop there. You need to go to God and say, Lord, there's something for me to do. And if God doesn't seem to make something clear, just feel free to go ahead and make some mistakes. You can learn from them. What you will learn in the next three presentations in this seminar is the nuts and bolts of how you can become a trained, effective, powerhouse soul winner. And not only how you can do it, but how you can go from here back to your church and turn your church upside down. And listen, if your whole church doesn't want to get on board, and whole churches never want to do anything but nothing, then find those who want to. If there's one person who wants to get involved, you find that one person. If there's two little old ladies who want to get involved, grab them and press them into service. Louis Torres loves to tell a story about when he went to a church, all he had was some little old ladies, and one of them smelled like goats. He said, if this is what I've got to use, this is what I've got to use. And before long, the pastor and this group of little old ladies were winning souls and baptizing people. It doesn't matter what you got. It matters what God's got. And if God has got you, God can do something great through you and in you. Enough talking about a revolution. 
be determined to go from GYC and be the revolution your family, your church, your community, your Sabbath school class needs. If God can get hold of you, no matter your age, your status, your education, your rank, if God can get hold of you. He got hold of one little girl, a slave girl, and Naaman was healed and came to faith in Christ because of the witness of a little girl. God can use you if you will not only stand up, but if you will step forward. Peter would never have walked on water if he didn't get out of the boat. Time to get out of the boat, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Don't stay in the salt shaker. Go and make a difference. God can and will make an eternal difference through you. Let us pray. Our Father, we make ourselves available to you today, and we pray that you would give us opportunities and divine appointments and ministries and, 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 and fields of labor, and people to share with and, and resources and, and tools to share. Now, we're only halfway through this, and the best is yet to come. As Pastor Howard talks tomorrow uh, about, about really making this intensely practical and shares with us the things that we can tangibly and practically do, I ask you to add a great outpouring of your Holy Spirit. You mustn't let us go back from here thinking, oh, that was nice, or maybe one day, or maybe somebody else. But Lord, if we are consumed with your glory and your service, I know that you can and will do a great thing. Jesus is coming back soon. So let us, Lord, not be cumberers of the ground, but active in labor for Jesus, seeking souls for whom he died. We thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit gycweb.org. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.